I needed a victory, a success. Something that said, there's something to this guy besides talk. And we installed uh, schedule learning in uh, September of 98. And 14 months later, we reduced the locomotive fleet, fleet uh, 35%. In that case, 650 less locomotives. You don't need as many parts, labor, material. Same way with the car fleet. So it became a very successful operating model, producing low operating ratios, good cash flow, and it became very successful uh, in the market. I think it's fair to say. The fourth portion of this is, which we sometimes don't pay the appropriate attention to, is just simply don't get anybody hurt while you're doing this. Now, we can be very sophisticated, and we can talk about risk management and loss control and programs and processes and so forth. Uh, I got blood all over my hands uh, from injuries in this industry that should have been avoidable. I think these issues of safety never fall to the wayside with us. Now, the fifth thing is the key, and it's where we slipped and it's where uh, we recognize, to some degree, the vulnerability of this system. And that's the people, because the people do it. I can write all the great architecture. I can put the X's and O's up there. If I don't have anybody that can pass it and catch it, I can throw it away. The people execute, and the rails that have done the best are the ones that execute day in and day out. And we so much so many times overlooked it. Hello and welcome to the Antifada a non-engineering communist podcast without slides. I am, of course, Sean KB, and I'm here with a returning guest, a returning champion, our resident train expert, engineering expert, um, uh, disaster expert, yes. <laughs> Justin Rosniak of Well, There's Your Problem. What's up, man? Uh, hello, I'm the knower of things about trains. <laughs> the knower of say, See, you say that, you know, You've been on how many podcasts to talk about the upcoming potential railroad strike? At least uh, like a half several. dozen. Yeah, I was on. Uh, well, I was on work stoppage. I was on. Uh, what you would call it? I was on. Uh, 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 this machine kills. That's what I'm thinking of. I was oh, on. that's a great podcast. Then, they, then they put me on NPR. Uh, that interview was kind of bad because it was six in the morning. I was not oh, prepared Jesus. for that. Uh, I was just on a Berkeley radio station about it. And I was, of course, I was in the New York Times as well. Yes, um, the, you were. E- the evil empire. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I woke up one morning because, you know, I, I, I subscribed to the Times like a, a good shit lib. And uh, I opened it up and I'm reading this article about trains. I'm like, damn, this fucking article, this op-ed is good and based as fuck. And I get to the end, of course, and it's Justin Rosen. And I texted you immediately. I'm like, dude, you're in the New York Times. You're like, I know. I, I heard. Like, Does that make me evil now? <laughs> 
No, it doesn't make you evil. It just makes yeah. you like the foremost uh, I'm, socialist I'm, proponent of train nationalization. I'm, I'm reforming the system from within. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that, my yeah. friend. <laughs> it's going to be a long march through the 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 gray lady. Yes, <laughs> that sounds slightly lewd, but yeah, uh, yeah. long march through. Uh, you and me, actually, you 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 and Liam. <laughs> Uh, yay, Liam. Everyone out yes. there, let's say it at once. Yay, Liam. Yay, Liam. Um, we, uh, you guys came up to the city. You were on a, um, uh, as I understand it, and details were maybe a little sparse because we were at the bar drinking. But uh, as I understand it, you were on a potato rolls junket. You were in the pocket on that trip of uh, I, we big were, Hawaiian potato roll. We were in the pocket of big Hawaiian roll. Yes, uh, they. <laughs> we have we have some friends in the railroad excursion industry. And they tipped us off. Hey, this is a free promotion from King's Hawaiian Rolls. Do you want a free ride to New York City in a private train car? It's like, Fuck yeah. yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you texted me. I think we were like texting, fucking around. And then you were like, by the way, I think I'm going to be in New York City. Like last minute. I didn't mean re- last minute meant that you were like basically um, – tying tying yourself to the evil that is the potato big potato roll industry what what have you like changed all your opinions now about potato rolls are you going to be like shilling for them at the end of every one of your episodes are you going to be shilling for it on this episode i i don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth um (laughs) but the the turkey sandwiches they served on the train were really dry. <laughs> oh, damn. You heard it here yeah. first, folks. The ruthless critique from inside yes. the potato roll industry. <laughs> the train trip was nice, but the, the food was... Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, we, we managed to get a nice bar experience downtown out of it. We went to one of my old stomping grounds, when I'm not going to dox the place, but that Irish bar down there, which, as I yes. said to you in the past, is... Um, close to an anarchist space that's been down in the financial district for like 15, 20 years or whatever. And one that we used to organize at my friend got married at it. Um, so right down there in the financial district, folks, there's anarchism happening. There's Irish bars happening. Sometimes there's Liam and Roz happening down there. Amazing things are happening at the financial district. So go down today to Manhattan's financial district and get yourself a Hawaiian potato roll. It's crazy what you can do when the rent is cheap. (laughs) Yeah, the rent is, I mean, yeah, when the the office vacancies are at record levels, you can sneak right in there. I mean, downtown Manhattan is such a funny, like, you. if you read somebody like, Mike Davis does this specifically for uh, Los Angeles and uh, City of Courts, but if you read um, somebody like Bob Fitch in The Assassination of New York, and you realize about cities and competing central business districts and the way that like real estate and development capital fights one another for zoning and city resources, you can understand a lot more about cities than, than you did previous. Like the battle between Midtown and the financial district is one that's like a hundred and something years old trying to, you know, gain leverage over the other as a business center. And now both of them are kind of fucked with the work from home thing and about people being say, scared yeah. to go into cities. It did look like Midtown was winning for a while, um, but uh, I don't know. Maybe soon we'll have just huge amounts of vacant office space in which to set up our podcasting offices. Ah, <laughs> I like that. I like that. The, the uh, on, on Times Square. 
Yes. You know, with all those big giant office buildings, there's going to be the, well, there's your problem building. Two whole floors of the Empire State Building. <laughs> hey, I like that, man. I like that a lot. I will come visit your offices. In fact, I will be there every day with a Hawaiian roll in hand. Yes. <laughs> begging for scraps of the, well, there's your problem empire. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Preamble aside, we're here uh, today uh, to talk uh, directly and obliquely about uh, this uh, upcoming potential rail strike. It's coming down the pipe before you know it. Uh, Two weeks from recording, uh, December 9th is the deadline. Um, What is it? Four out of the 13 major rail unions have uh, shot down the contract that was uh, arbitrated by the Biden administration, uh, which is adding... A whole element of fun and surprise into the holiday season, I'm sure, for uh, carriers and anybody who's moving commodities and goods around. And of course, for us, too. We want to get to the political economy of that, understand how it happened. We want to get into things like precision scheduled railroading. We want to talk about figures like E. Hunter Harrington, Harriman. Harrison. Harrison, yeah. Um, You may have, if Andy did his job, and I think he may have. You may have gotten a piece of a um, a piece of audio from a uh, public listening session from October eleventh, two thousand seventeen, uh, when the man in question, the man who revolutionized, you could say, or uh, you could say, desafetyized, or you could say, neoliberalized uh, rail transit over the last uh, you know many decades or so, when he admits to the uh, Surface Transportation uh, Board that he has blood all over his hands, um, which, <laughs> as we're going to see, is is quite correct. Because, you know, for people who don't know about the background of the strike, the uh, workers in question, Smart TD shot it down, uh, BLET shut it down. Uh, BLET uh, very narrowly voted in favor. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, and who, who else who else shot it down? Uh, Brotherhood of Maintenance Away Engineers, um, uh, and I believe the Brotherhood of Signal Signalmen. Mm, okay, these are people. Signalmen and Maintenance Away people are on the front lines of what kind of the main issue, uh, you know, the main sticking point is, well, which is scheduling and uh, the I, massive amounts of layoffs. I was actually surprised that uh, the the Maintenance Away guys uh, voted it down just because. They got one of the better deals. Um, the main people who have issues with scheduling are the conductors and the engineers. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Other than that, it's sort of, uh, you know, a, a lot of other a lot of the other crafts got pretty good deals out of the presidential emergency board. It's the the conductors and the engineers, which is, again, why I'm surprised that um, uh, Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen uh, uh, voted uh, voted for the deal, albeit very narrowly. Um, Well, they've got pressure coming. I mean, voting yes yes or no in this contract, you've got pressure not just coming from capital, of course, who um, wants, who is offered, prepared to offer, what is it, 24% raises over the next five years. Um, And I think a $1,000 signing bonus every year uh, for this particular contract. You've got uh, pressure from capital who is offering something. You've got pressure from, of course, the Biden administration, which came in a few months ago with a special arbitrated deal to kind of get these raises. And then you also have pressure from their local unions. And yeah, from I, um, I get the impression that the union stewards are really, uh, really trying to turn the thumbscrews to get this, uh, get this deal uh, voted uh, on favorably. Um, 
I mean, they don't, they obviously, the unions themselves don't want to strike, but it seems like the membership uh, is ready to, ready to rumble. Yes. By and large, which is a very interesting dynamic and one that I think a lot about this story, I think is really important for, for us and for listeners to kind of understand where railroading is and let's just say like transportation and freight in general of course there's been tons of news about supply chains because they've all taken a shit the last year and a half or so uh it helps us this story helps us understand about that supply chains just in time cost cutting it helps us understand the way that uh finance capital especially in this case uh hedge funds and large investors like I don't know that that saintly man um, with Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, who's like the sage of Omaha or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. how they've managed to come in and make a hash of uh, the economy and railroads in particular. But I think also, too, it's it's very telling about the state of uh, unions at this particular point, because instead of, of course, on top of a lot of reasons, instead of a unified bargaining unit, uh, you know, a union, an industrial union that represents all of these different types of workers who all make these trains run, who create the value there, um, you have this sort of balkanized system instead, very similar to the building trades, where 13 different unions are coming in and some of the membership is agreeing to this, uh, you know, contract. Some of them are shooting it down, at least in this instance, though, it's pretty much set that nobody is going to cross a picket line if there is actually a strike on December 9th. Isn't yes. that right? Yes, this is true. If, if one union goes on strike, they all go on strike. And they also have a, um, I believe, what's called the Me Too clause, not in a cancellation sense, but in the sense <laughs> that if one union wins a benefit, they all win the benefit. So, you know, this is uh, there. there's incentives once they go on strike to stay on strike. But you know, again, you have the uh, they're governed under the Railway Labor Act. So, you know, there's a strong chance that if they go on strike, Congress just uh, notices some of their staff can't get the work and orders mm. them back. Um, <laughs> that would be. Uh, yeah, it'd be pretty easy, I think, to realize how quickly things shut down without railroads, even for the the clowns in Congress, you know, yeah, because well, as we you know, I, the Amtrak relies, of course, too, on uh, the service of these rails, yes. not directly. As do quite a few commuter railroads, including uh, the, uh, the 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 Maryland area rail commuter train, the Mark train, which brings a lot of congressional staffers into work. That was what happened back in 1992, I want to say, oh. um, during a big strike is that, um, oh, the commuter trains aren't running. Uh, let's order the railroad workers back to work. <laughs> oh shit! Yeah. So it didn't even did it did it redound back to workers at all. I don't know much about the 1992 strike. Tell us. Let's let's start the kind of background to this. What happened in 1992? I am, uh, what were the reverberations to today? I am not a hundred percent certain about much in 1992 because a lot of it seems to have been sort of. Uh, uh, memory hold, you know, um, you know, but it was uh, there was a big labor dispute back then. Um, the rail, the entire rail system went on strike. Uh, it lasted two days and then Congress ordered everyone back to work uh, and the workers sort of lost that one. I don't think there was mm. much, much like reform, um, you know, so it was it is kind of that that one was a failure. I mean, this one, you have a less unified Congress, you have a lot more, a lot more leverage. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. And we'll see if the Democrats uh, 
you know, decide to, you might get like a, a 99 to one vote in the Senate to order everyone back to work. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Bernie Sanders would be the one guy that's, yeah, yeah. that's maybe Bernie, that. <laughs> but how does the actual voting on that go? Like, is, is it through like the surface transportation board puts a recommendation to Congress or is there like a subcommittee that deals with the transportation stuff that would recommend, or would they try to push through, uh, Joe Biden's yellow union scab deal that he tried to push down workers' throats a few months ago. I have no idea what the actual procedures are. I will say I would think the most likely outcome would be they would try and force the PEB deal uh, down everyone's throats. Um, you know, and that's that, you know, it, and that is a better deal than what they have, but it's still not good. Yeah, I mean, like this is kind of the deal that was pushed through by the the most pro-union administration. And I'm using massive scare quotes on that. Yeah. The same one where the uh, labor secretary, what's his name? Marty McFly, Marty. Marty Walsh. Marty Walsh from Boston. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Marty Walsh from Boston uh, and Joe Biden. Uh, basically, you know, they, they, they can, they came out of these meetings and they said like, you know, huge historical raises for the workers, 24%. But to hammer this home for people, it's not a matter of just wages. I mean, the wages, obviously no one's going to turn that shit down, but it's about scheduling and it's about maintaining some modicum of safety and some small semblance of control and autonomy in a railroad system in this country that is becoming like, as, um, as inhuman, uh, as psychotic as like the Amazon warehouse logistics yeah, shit, yes. which are driving people into the fucking grave. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the the biggest dispute is over. Can I please take a day off? Yes. I would just like to take a day off, please. <laughs> can I can I has a doctor's appointment? Please? Can I have a doctor's appointment? Can I have a something approaching a weekend? Can I just not be on call? Can I know my children's names? Yeah. Can yes, I, exactly. Like, see what it's like. See their to faces. My, yeah. To see maybe a baseball game sometime with yes. my kid. Yeah. Like real basic, basic ass stuff that the uh, American dream is, to, is uh, supposed to provide. Yeah. Uh, people like this E. Hunter Harriman fellow. Yeah. And uh, this sort of very consolidated railroad industry, which is what's it like 93% of the cargo is now the big four railroad companies. Uh, yes. You got your, your, your big four, uh, class one railroads, uh, CSX, Norfolk, Southern union Pacific, Burlington, Northern Santa Fe, um, Kansas city. Southern is about to be absorbed into Canadian Pacific. Um, Canadian national also runs some lines in the United States. Um, but yeah, I guess those six then are, the big ones. Uh, and then you have lots and lots of short lines. You have a couple regional railroads like Florida East Coast. Um, mm. Those aren't involved in the current bargaining um, because uh, short lines and regional railroads, there's there's a wide variety of working conditions there. When we were in West Virginia recently, we went down there for the summer, which is a tremendous place, uh, visited for a few days. Uh, saw a lot of train related stuff because it's incredible the amount of uh, coal 
Oh yeah, which is still transported out of there. We saw coal cars that were like three hundred cars. They just kept coming and coming and coming. And we, the other thing we saw were these uh, several of these short lines that you were talking about, which looked like they were maybe used like once a week or whatever, as sort of in order to move coal like directly from where they're produced into big, bigger sort of intermodal. Not maybe not intermodal facilities. I don't know what all uh, these things are called. You just like you just take feeder a lot facilities. Of, yeah, you put a bunch of coal cars together in one big coal train. You ship it to uh, Lambert's Point in Norfolk, and you export it somewhere. Or because uh, a lot of that is metallurgical coal now. Not not, not so much goes to power plants anymore. Hmm. Um, so that it's, goes it's to, used to it, stoke it, steel uh, yeah. foundries and stuff. I, I think a lot of it's in uh, France and Germany. Yeah, um, globalization, baby. Yes. So how did, so we've got this system where there's like four American and like internationally, if you include Canada as a nation, which I don't, six uh, comp, uh, companies <laughs> who really control the vast majority of this stuff. There's this huge contract that's being bargained right now that there's a lot. How did we get to this point? You and I actually, we I was on Well, There's Your Problem a few yeah. months ago and we talked about Conrail, the failure of the bankruptcy of much of the freight in this country and then the consolidation. And interestingly, too, for this conversation, we also talked about the sort of potentials in the 70s of like a workers run railroad or like horror of horrors. Yeah. 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 Or a national railway. Yeah. Something that the that members of the Railway Workers United, which is a rank and file sort of coalition group across all these different uh, trades. Um, have been pushing for nationalization somehow in the year 2022 made it back onto the agenda or at least into the discussion, if only because how fucked up freight rail is in this country. Yes. Talk a little bit about how fucked up it is uh, and talk about a little bit how it got that way. So, uh, so like, OK, if we go way back, historically, railroads are very small sort of regional affairs. Um, they gradually merged into some larger like bigger railroads uh through like the eight, late 1800s uh railroads are more efficient when they're bigger that's just a fact uh the bigger the railroad the more the easier it is to run it's a it's an economy of scale thing mm-hmm. um so you know as early as the 1920s I, we nationalized the railroads in in world war one uh just because the terminal facilities in new york were so bad that it ruined the uh the entire rail network um Oof. So based Woodrow Wilson came in and did a yes. socialism to the railroads. Yes, uh, based uh, based in the um, in 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 the right wing sense as well, on account of being a Klansman. Um, ah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> American socialism is socialism with Klan characteristics. Yeah, apparently, if you're get yeah. nationalization. It's going to come yes, with un- some un- form of apartheid. Unfortunately, there's some white hoods associated with it. Yes. Yeah, um, so surprise. the uh, yeah. So the. Um, uh, after that, we return. Unfortunately, we return the railroads into private hands. Um, you know, you start to see in the 1920s, there's a proposal for the Interstate Commerce Commission to merge the railroads into a set of sort of super systems. Um, and these are, uh, you know, the, the problem is all these railroads are governed sort of as fiefdoms, right? Uh, mm. These are not so much companies as 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 medieval fiefdoms. Uh, alternately warring with each other and collaborating with each other. Um, uh-huh. yeah. As any good as any good lords would, right? Yes. Uh, then during like through World War II, you know, you have mostly a stable system. The 50s and 60s uh, railroads in the Northeast start to um, fall apart. Uh, this is because of deindustrialization, changing urban geographies. Also, um, <clears throat> freight rates are highly regulated 
in a way that makes it very difficult to make a profit over short hauls. So, you know, if you're trying to move freight from Hartford to New Haven, you're not going to make money on that. Um, you know, and obviously we also have very generous, uh, labor contracts at this point, which is good. Um, Mm -hmm. but you're not, uh, it's not sort of commiserate with, uh, the amount of money railroads in the Northeast can pull in, uh, railroads out West and in the South, we're doing fine, by the way, this is not a, this is, it's not like the whole industry was in danger of collapse. It's just that the industry that supported the most populous part of the nation was about to collapse. (laughs) Is, is is that because the, um, the economy of scale at work, the, um, the sort of deindustrialization of the Northeast and what we call the rust belt moves a lot of the sort of commodities and finished goods that make sense to move railroads with to other parts of the country. That's part of like the movement of industry. Yeah. I mean, if you are, if you're like, uh, the Southern railway, you're you're in a you're in the uh, you know you're in the Sun Belt. You're making a lot of money because there's new industry popping up there everywhere. If you are the New York, New Haven, and Hartford, uh, every textile mill is closing up there. Right. You're losing traffic, you know, constantly. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and a lot of the extractive stuff too, like a lot of. Um... A lot of the industry, you know, goes to where there's sort of like synergy between extraction and production, especially in the 19th century. So there's whole like um, logging companies that are up in Maine and Canada are running short lines that run the wood, you know, the raw wood down into processing plants in like, say, Massachusetts and then out to like paper plants around that area. And a lot of these start to fall apart. And even a lot of the extractive industries start to go out west, right, where it's like cheaper and easier and use public lands and things of that sort. And so, you know, we move into this era of mergers. The big one was the New York Central and the Pennsylvania Railroad merged into Penn Central, which immediately crashed and burned in the worst corporate bankruptcy in history uh, up until that point. Yeah. And then up until Enron, up until Enron. Yes. And then that was that system was nationalized into they also drove a whole bunch of other railroads out of business simultaneously. Uh, That was merging. That was that was turned into Conrail, the Consolidated Railroad Corporation. Um, You know, they sort of and and this is when you you had a government owned quasi nationalized railroad. Um, and this is when the austerity starts, ironically. Mm. You know, you sort of think, oh, nationalized railroad. We're going to do, you know, great big government stuff. Well, it was nationalized. Uh. It was nationalized under Nixon. So, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, this is America. When you're this talking is... about nationalization, it's going to be temporary. It's going to be austerity. Yes. And it's going to try to turn uh, a turd into an even... I don't know, stinkier turd. Some of but the one that makes profits. Yes, yeah, some of the some of the current morbidities start to uh, appear here. Um, you know, you have stuff like you are lifting tracks, you are running fewer trains, you're running trains to fewer destinations. This, of course, means you have leverage to start cutting crews. Uh, you have leverage to uh, you have leverage against the union because. You don't need so many people, and it's fairly clear you don't need so many people. So, you know, rather than being able to come to the bargaining table like we want this, 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 and this, you're coming to the bargaining table saying, "Please don't cut all of our jobs." Um, right? Yeah, the capital is just dictating at that point yeah. in time. Layoffs are like clearly on the horizon. Yeah, lots and lots of layoffs. I mean, the workforce was pruned to a huge extent. I um, saw a statistic in, in looking through stuff for this episode that 
um, with the deregulation, which I think is what the Stags Act of 1980. The Staggers Act, yeah. Staggers Act. Um, the employment of railroads went from a half million and now today it's like 133,000 with much of the cuts actually coming in the last five years or so right oh yeah i mean well the the once we get once we get to the precision scheduled railroading section of the story oh boy uh but this is sort of where it starts and the staggers act i think is a a mixed bag because the interstate commerce commission was genuinely bad at setting railroad rates um they had an old-fashioned system where you you priced things based on the value of the goods rather than the cost of transportation, which meant that, you know, if I had a boxcar full of, uh, I don't know, uh, sacks of grain, it would cost a lot more to ship that. It would cost less to ship that boxcar than if it were full of TVs, Mm. Um, you know, even though it's the same form factor. So this, this discouraged a lot of people from shipping by rail when they could simply, They could ship by truck, which had a different rate structure, or they could own their own truck trailers and be completely exempt from all that stuff. Um, Right, right. Yeah. And and, and so much of like the um, so much of uh, truck uh, highway (coughs) transportation in this country is like massively subsidized by the federal government. Oh, yeah. Um, Whereas trains, not not as much. Right. There's not much subsidy to railroads at all. Um, Which is insane to me, just in terms of like, if you were trying to, I don't know, have like a rational capitalist system and one in which, you know, it's possible to move commodities from one space to another in order to get them into people's hands and their money out of their wallets. It would seem to make sense to to try to craft something that, uh, I don't know, gave at least equal subsidies to the one that can move a lot of stuff really cheaply compared to the one. I, I mean, freight rail is just a black box to so many people. I mean, if you look at um, I remember, I think it was the New York Times. I forget who wrote it, um, you know, when this when these strike rumblings were first uh, first uh, happening. Um, I forget who wrote it, but I want to say it was Brett Stevens or someone like Ugh, that. The bug like, man, the yeah, bed wanted bug. To, wanted wanted to do a wanted to do an explainer about the railroad strike and then spent uh, three quarters of the article talking about uh, shipping containers. And, uh. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so he read yeah. like the the um the he read preface the, to the box. He read the box, yeah. It's <laughs> like, oh, this is how everything moves now. <laughs> Famous book. If people don't know what the box, it's like a uh, economic and social history of the container. It's very yeah, interesting. Yeah. Stuff. It's, it's like but a lot of people just kind of stop there. I guess they sort of stop there. Like everything moves in shipping containers now. No, lots of stuff doesn't. That, right. And that stuff's important. <laughs> There's a a strike happening. I think right now. I think one of the ILA the internet. National Longshore Association, I think in uh, Mobile, Alabama, just went out on strike uh, uh, over the break bulk contract, or I think it's called near break bulk. Break bulk meaning, of course, things that aren't in containers. Yeah, so things, plenty things of that stuff. can uh, things that can fall off a truck, you know. Uh, right. Yeah. The good, like the good old days. Like the know? good old like days. The, like the good old Goodfellow days when you know you could like I don't know purloin back when you could purloin. Is a certain amount of. Uh, a certain amount of the shipment will disappear, and that's fine. <laughs> that's a cost of doing business, yeah. man. That's how it goes. I mean, uh, we're what we're, in your history now? We're we're up to what 1980, or we're, we're into the, the 1980s, 1980s yeah, we're now. About you, the the Staggers had, Act. We have much better. We have a much better rate structure for railroads that makes them more competitive, but it also means that you know you, labor is on the fences here. Uh, right. You know this is this is uh, 
this is uh, not such a great situation to be in. Um, and this is where uh, sort of late 80s, early 90s, this is where E. Hunter Harrison comes in. Uh, the uh, demon, the devil, yes. the villain of our story. He's he's on this railroad called the Illinois Central that goes from Chicago to New Orleans in a straight shot. Um, and he, you know, he, he notices one day, you know, he's 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 walking around. He's he was not CEO at this point, but um, you know, he looking all looking at all the rail yards they have. All these railroad cars are just sitting around in the rail yard, not moving. Mm. And he realizes, like, look, I, when these cars aren't moving, they're not making us money. We have they're dwelling. Keep, yeah. Exactly. So they're just they're just sitting there. He invents this sort of management philosophy called uh, precision scheduled railroading. Boo. And so this is theoretically good. And I think actually Harrison himself implemented it a lot better than everyone else did. Um, the idea being rather than having a system where, you know, you bring a railroad car out of a local siding and you, you, you bring it to a big rail yard and, you know, you switch it into a new train, bring it to the next railroad uh, rail yard, switch it into a new train, bring it to the next rail yard, switch it into a new train, so on and so forth until you get to roughly your destination. Um, you would have more trains that bypass intermediate rail yards and terminals. Mm. Um, so they move more quickly to their destination, thereby saving time, saving labor hours, saving time for the, the, the shipper, um, and generally, you would have a faster, better running, leaner railroad that performs better. And the other idea is you run these trains on set schedules as a sort of as opposed to as needed, which, you know, of course, would make, you know, it, it, that means you can coordinate reliability. Where, you have yeah. better reliability. You know where to invest in infrastructure. Crucially, if the trains run on set schedules, at least theoretically, the crews have more predictable schedules. But. We'll get to that in a bit. Um, it's it's like a, a scheduled express train, a train but for uh, freight. Uh, yes. So basically, it's like it's it's more reliable. Customers, which is to say, large corporations, can figure out when they're going. They can base their schedules around it. Uh, what are the downsides of it, though? Because obviously, because I, you know, we we have the clip of uh, Harriman talking about all the blood he's got on his hands. This man who is uh, in this video here, this uh, STB public listening session on emphysema and apparently, or uh, on oxygen because of yes. emphysema, and a couple months from dying. So, which makes his claim of having blood on his hands an interesting creed de corps from a guy who's like, you know, basically not just taken lives, but also completely upended this industry and made it into like, you know, this, um, this death trap and this soul crushing, destroying industry that doesn't seem to even all really work that much as we've seen over the last year. Well, and a half. It does work very well for making money. I will say that. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the, 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 the big headline stats for this shit are um, over the last 10 or since 2010, the big railroad companies have made $200 billion or done $200 billion of uh, buybacks and dividends to, to stockholders, while, of course, only investing $150 billion into uh, infrastructure and I, capital or whatever. But $200 billion is a lot of fucking money. 
That's a lot of fucking money. $200 billion is a lot of railroad. You know, you want a high-speed railroad from Los Angeles to New York City? That's about the order of magnitude you're looking at. Um, There you go. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just put that money into perspective. This is like real money, too. This This isn't even funny money. Yeah, this is is actual money that, that like, physically exists as opposed to, (laughs) you know, crypto or something. This is is money they got from moving... Uh, a boxcar of anvils, from, <laughs> you know, Yo. from like from like Davin Point to Kansas City. <laughs> We're talking that sweet, that real authentic MCM prime money. We're not talking about that fake ass M to M prime funny money. All right. This is anvil money. This is sweated labor money. Yes, this this is-, is productive. This is real yeah. shit. Two hundred billion dollars in real shit is a lot of money. Yes. And it's gone, of course, directly into the pockets of investors, capitalists, Warren Buffett, big hedge funds and whatever. So, yeah, so it's uh, this this precision scheduled railroading stuff, I, again, theoretically very good. What's sort of happened in practice as more and more railroads have adopted it is what gets implemented is the cost cutting side uh, and not so much the infrastructure improvement side. Um, so you do have systems where trains bypass intermediate terminals, but you don't have the necessary infrastructure improvements for those trains to stay on schedule. So Mm. what PSR has sort of become is it's a way to speed up the railroad and save money by making every train late. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be the uh, Amtrak model too, but (laughs) if you, if you want to see, People talk about how bad Amtrak is with on-time performance, but there was an article earlier this year in Trains Magazine. Um, the, the the railroads have started to uh, have to report their on-time performance to the Surface Transportation Board, which mm. is the replacement for the Interstate Commerce Commission. Um, and in some categories in freight, notably uh, Norfolk Southern's on-time performance with general merchandise, that's like mixed freight trains with boxcars, tank cars, hopper cars, uh, they delivered freight on time less than 50% of the time. Oof. And the definition of on time was on the same day it was supposed to show up. Oh, <laughs> man. Ow, that sucks. Wow, that's terrible. Holy it's shit. really bad. Yeah, it's that's really bad. bad. So, oh, my God. So despite all of this uh, rejiggering of schedules, despite all this making life a living hell, despite losing tens of thousands of railway workers, which yeah. is a pretty good job, skilled job yes. to attrition. We still cannot get 50% of them on the same fucking day. On the same day. Wow. Yeah. That sucks shit, dude. You people should be fucking embarrassed. Uh, it's, 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 it's an embarrassing state of affairs. And one of the effects of this has been, you know, all these trains are running late. That is very bad for trying to staff these trains, right? Because you are, right. these crews time out at weird places and they have to, the railroad has to dispatch a van to go pick them up, drive them down 20 miles of dirt roads before getting on the highway and driving an hour back to their terminal. And they also have to call someone up at 2 a.m. in the morning and say, hey, you got to take this train in two hours. And they have to show up to their terminal and then get driven on a van one hour out and then down 20 miles of dirt roads to get on the train and then, you know, pick it up and move it to the next terminal. And, you know, because all these delays are accruing, sometimes you might be called to crew a train and then sit at like a red signal for eight hours, oh, um, you know, and, and, and you're just stuck there. Um, you know, it's it's been uh, genuinely the industry has gotten much more miserable to work. Um, you know, you also have lots and lots of surveillance 
Um, you are not allowed to use your phone, um, which is a safety measure. I mean, there's lots of stuff which is uh, ostensibly safety measures, which yeah. is really just uh, you don't want a, surveillance. A yeah, you don't want like the the train operator to be playing Candy Crush saga yes, but, or but, like shit posting or whatever. But at but, the same time, you know, when it's like you're gonna be sitting here for six hours. Yeah, maybe maybe you can have some leeway there. Yeah. Um, so, but as, as a surveillance tool, I mean, that's yeah. obviously very, very powerful. Like the, the idea, and I watched this STB uh, public listening session. My first one, you know, I'm not as an advanced a, a train enthusiast or analyst as say Justin Rosniak is. So this was my first surface transportation board public listening session. But like a lot of what the drive for is ultimately bizarrely, not just to automate the trains, uh, and I, I suppose get rid of maybe not get rid of every crew member, but certainly go from two crew members, which seems like a smart redundancy when you're moving like a billion yes. dollars worth of hazardous goods, sometimes through major towns and cities in this country yes. uh, to have one person and then also to ultimately automate them to the point where that guy is just going to be a guy or girl or whatever is just going to be sitting there and just kind of like. Uh, making sure nothing goes wrong, just like yeah. a Tesla car on autopilot or whatever. Seems like A, a an absolute disaster for the, the skilled trades and B, completely unplausible. Yeah, the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the railroads uh, have been trying to push this one man crew idea for a long time. Um, and it's a really dumb idea um, because, uh, I mean, it can be done. It can be done safely. They do it in Europe, but that's because they have massive amounts of fail safes and uh, mm. other stuff. And the class one railroads are not going to do that. So you have to this is mostly as a, uh, a threat to labor as opposed to something that they're actually going to be able to do. Mm. <laughs> um, OK, so it's classic. It's, it's just the same as like if uh, you try to organize this Starbucks, we're going to shut it down. Or, you know, if our labor costs go up too much at this Anvil factory, we're going to have to move it to Mexico. Or, or, or we're, or, you know, you, you truck drivers better behave because we're going to have automated trucks in like five right. years. Just well, you well, see. <laughs> yeah, it's always five years away, but they're yeah. coming in five years. They're coming no, in I mean, exactly but- five years. The, the trucking thing is, is really is really interesting because I was joking about this over the last year or so when there was this massive truck driver shortage. All you heard from the press and, uh, you know, it's not like truck drivers are ignorant of their own business, whether they're employees or whether they're owner operators. All this talk about um, automating their jobs away. You know, and so if you were a truck driver, why in the world would you invest all the time to get the skills or like get your own truck or whatever, when everybody's telling you in all the magazines that once Elon Musk finishes automating cars, we're going to automate those trucks, truck driving as a business is going away as employment, it's going away. And then all of a sudden, a year ago, it's like, damn, we got no truck drivers. Yeah. Guys, <laughs> come come work for us. Come. <laughs> How did this happen? <laughs> How did this happen? And, and a very similar thing happened with this whole uh, PSR essentially what is just in time production, the same sort of thing that Toyota brought in in the auto industry in the late 70s and early 80s, just in time production for uh, railway transit. You had very similar things happen when our supply chains, global supply chains took a complete and utter shit, which is that the lack of redundancy, uh, their attempts to cut workers to cut, what is it called? Boarding when you have like a backup driver who's on call in order to jump in if something happens. Yeah. All of these, this cutting the fat uh, basically cut the fat to the bone 
uh, to the point where even starting in 2017, as it turns out, not even 2020, 2021, uh, you started to see the fruits of all this cutting and it was not good, not just for like the, um, the scheduling of these trains, the ability of like uh, producers to get their goods out there uh, and the workers, yeah. but also just like the functioning of a, a decent system. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the one thing precision schedule railroading has done as it's been implemented is uh, sort of curtailed the kinds of businesses that railroads can contend for now because right. uh, you can't have just in time production where the boxcar of parts might show up in a three day window. <laughs> Yeah, 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 that's not just in time enough. That's, that's not that's that's <laughs> that doesn't work. Yeah, that's uh, that's like sometimes on time. Yes, sometimes in time, sometimes once, not in time. Once a while, it's on time. Once in a while, on time <laughs> yeah. doesn't have the same ring to it. Yeah. Uh, so, so after all the the purporting of this to be like a more rationalizing system, and it is like this Harriman gentleman is like when you described him walking around train yards, he's like uh, he, he did a f- uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor, you know, going back to Taylorism. He's looking around and he's finding, you know, all these different various redundancies and employment. He's like using his fucking uh, Terminator vision yes. to like figure out ways to cut costs and ways to, to slim down. Uh, capital ownership and things of that sort and ways of making profits. Uh, and this is, of course, a tendency that's rife, been rife across capitalism for 150 years or so. It just turns out when it hits this like essential transportation industry, when it hits the fact that like you actually have to have people prepared to run these trains, to switch yes. these trains out or whatever, it turns out to be an utter disaster. Or at least that is to say... Um, the capitalists who are trying to move their goods are unhappy. The workers are unhappy. The only people who are happy are the people on the receiving ends of those $200 billion worth of dividends and stock buybacks. Yes, which is absolutely crazy that they spent that money on that because I I, I, I think Harrison would even say one of the key I keep calling parts, him Harriman. I yeah, mean Harrison. No, Har- <laughs> Harriman was uh, a Union Pacific robber baron back in the day. Oh, <laughs> see, that's where I'm getting yeah. it from. Okay. So, yeah. So uh, even Harrison would say, you know, you 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 need to do lots of infrastructure investment to keep these long, fast, long distance trains on time. And that is something that the class one railroads simply have not done. They're just like, okay, we run the train long and fast. And uh, if it's late, it's late. Um, (laughs) If it gets stuck somewhere weird, that happens. And you know what? It works fine for the bottom line. It works terribly for everyone involved. Um, except people who their entire relationship to the railroad is watching the number go up. Right. (laughs) Line goes up. (laughs) And, and ultimately like the railroading industry is fascinating. We go further back into this history even and talk about the epic labor struggles of like the 1877 uh, great railroad strike, which was basically like a fucking general strike in this country. Go back to the Pullman strike, go back to the, um, the sort of uh, populist and farmer alliance and the real intense uh, hatred of these giant monopoly uh, corporations, the railroads, which were making life hell for uh, farmers and small producers uh, in the 19th and early 20th century. And like the great revulsion uh, at the railroading industry, uh, how that led to the state's necessity to step in 
and start to do things that the American state hadn't wanted to do before. You know, what is the Interstate Commerce Commission, but something foisted upon uh, the federal government because of the kind of changing technical composition of capital and the, you know, the movement of good across states lines, goods across state lines, of course, even fucking time zones or because all of a sudden you have this yes. thing that can move really, really fast. When, uh, and, and when so God's we, time became Vanderbilt's time. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So, so like railroads have always been central, I think, to like the state's the state's intervention in creating them by giving them a whole ton of land. It's always been like a state building and capital building enterprise. There's always been a, a deep involvement between the state and capital. And then, of course, in the 20th century, too, you had you had the the necessity to create some sort of labor arbitrage system, some corporatist system with a state stepping in in between in order to ensure, quote unquote, fairness, you know, between the contracts and the investment and the, and whatever. It seems to me that that's sort of broken down. If you see the strike authorization votes uh, that are coming down, the rejection of these contracts, it seems as though the attempt to build like a good corporatist system where you could have the state as an arbitrator between these interests has uh, fallen apart. Uh, I guess it did in 1992 to an extent, but this time it, it really feels like something's ready to break. Something's ready to give. It's, this might be, I, I don't want to sound too optimistic. This might be a, a, a part that is going to give in a big, bad way. Um, just on account of, uh, you know, so many people are trained to see stuff in dollar values now that it's like, oh, we can just force these railroad workers back to work. And if they don't go to work, it doesn't matter. That's two billion dollars in damages to the economy per day. We can probably handle that. And then they die of cholera because the chlorine, <laughs> the chlorine didn't get to the, the, the water treatment plant. You know, right. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is why the state has a massive interest in, in this. You know, it's, it's pretty essential. Not necessarily the anvils, per se, move yeah. from like Gainesville to wherever. Yeah. But that like the things that are made with the anvils eventually yes. make it to, you know, end consumers of them. And so society keeps running without cholera. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and other and other ancient plagues that will come back if yes, I, 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 all kinds of demons will uh will appear if if this strike goes on for more than a couple of days <laughs> <laughs> demons will stalk the earth again will yes. stalk the lands of america once more i mean the demons are sitting in corporate boards honestly but like yeah. you know obviously congress it was funny when marty mcfly basically said like yeah, we're going to shove a contract down there. Congress will be forced to shove a contract down these workers' throats. I mean, that, like is, the idea that is the most likely outcome, I think, at this point. And then, and then I I don't want to say the world, word wildcat, but you will have some people are going to be mad. <laughs> I'm willing to say the, the word wildcat. I mean, two weeks ago on the podcast, or was it one week ago? Uh, we talked about the potentials uh, and pitfalls of this uh, for not just these particular workers, but for the working class at large. And, you know, the the kind of thing, you know, chaining these workers to the wheel, essentially, yes. like enslaving them back into the, the hands of railroad capital, making wage slaves out of them. Uh, could maybe, and this is my feeling, potentially backfire in this case. I mean, if if the number one concern is not only not being met, but like all the powers that be on all sides, including, let's add the unions themselves, are trying to force this. And there's such anger. 
you know, the, the, the uptick in strike activity we've seen over the last couple of years has been an uptick from previous years of like utter decline, right? I don't yes. think it's just the quantitative aspect of strike activity going on in this country right now. I think there's a qualitative shift that's happened right now. And it's not just railroad workers, but they're kind of a canary in the coal mine right now. Uh, it doesn't seem unlikely to me to see some sort of wildcat action if they fucking uh, throw yeah. them back into into the I, mix. I don't know that the, the the canary in the coal mine. I think they're the actual the canary in the coal mine is dead, long dead. Um, okay, yeah. <laughs> These are the last stragglers trying to get out of yeah, the coal mine are... as the methane starts to fill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is this is the actual um this is the actual bad shit that's about to happen. Um, right, so you yeah. have, I mean. Uh, you're in a situation right now, um, which is an interesting one, um, which is, you know, I think very well, Congress may just order everyone back to work, take this shitty deal. Um, your big issue is going to be that um, a lot of people who currently work for the railroad hired on back in 2004. And I believe I'm not certain of this math here. I, I, I never quite figured out this research, but I did see it on a YouTube video from a railroad worker. So um, that means that their railroad retirement and their pensions vest in 2024. Oh, uh-oh. So, and we're talking about 80,000 people they hired on back then, and you got to think this entire oh. bargaining union is like 100,000 people. Oh, man. Uh, so it's so like- So you might it, see a huge exodus anyways, it, huh? You, you will, you, if it does not happen now, it will happen then. <laughs> wow. What if they tried to throw a railroad industry and nobody showed up? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, no, this I, is. I got my railroad this, retirement. I got my pension. I'm going to live my life. I mean, of course. You know, and, and so many people, I've heard it referred to as the golden handcuffs, right? You know, you're going to have such great benefits in a couple of years, but in the meantime, you have to be miserable. Um, yeah. And people are still quitting. I mean, I, anecdotally, I know a guy who knows a guy who worked for Union Pacific, and he got um he got a prestige job, right? He got, um, he got, he, he got into the union Pacific steam locomotive program, right? Mm. That means you get to drive the big steam locomotive it because it's union Pacific. It's the biggest one. It's just called the big boy. Cool. Um, and it's like, okay, I got the world's coolest job. I drive the big steam locomotive. I got to blow the whistle at the kids, so on yeah. and so forth. Right. And then, uh, you know, but because he was also a regular, you know, freight engineer, he's driving, he was on the same horrible schedule. And, uh, you know, he had he had the most prestigious job on a railroad and he quit and became a personal trainer at a gym. Oh, shit. <laughs> he just couldn't take it. Couldn't take it. Yeah. Wow. Th th dude, this is crazy because you read these stories. There was one of the New York Times recently about uh, Chinese manufacturers being unable to hire uh, Chinese workers, uh, younger workers, because they simply don't want to deal with the wages and conditions of working under that. They're becoming like Grubhub or the equivalent delivers uh, over there. I mean, there's like a real sort of, I mean, as these conditions deteriorate, it seems kind of like, I don't know, necessary that there's going to be like a medium term crisis in the, in the ability to actually get people to do these sorts of jobs, unless you break up the unions. I mean, I guess that's yeah, the other I, possibility I, is if, and I don't think they want that. I think they ultimately want the unions, all these different balkanized crafts, trade yes. unions to remain uh, the arbiter, the, the, the sailors, the reasonable sellers of uh, their memberships, labor power. They want to buy labor peace for as cheap as they possibly can. Yeah. At least they want to rent labor piece over the course of various different contracts because these workers are about as essential as workers ever possibly get. Yes. Uh, the, the unions have failed them 
for sure, but they failed them in a very structural way. You know, the fact that you're dealing with these 13 different unions, the fact that in the year 2022, there has never been an evolution from the sort of backwards looking um, sort of balkanized, um, self-interested, tiny craft unionism of the mid 19th century into the sort of more mature industrial unionism that could maybe potentially have the power to go up against these countries says as much about where organized labor is in this country as it does where capital is. Well, I, I, I will say there has been an evolution in that I believe this is the first time that all 12 craft unions have bargained at once. Oh, okay. So this and is, and they actually they pushed their strike deadlines to the same day. Is that part of it too? Uh, yes. Uh, the, the the if one if one goes on strike, they all go on strike. So they're sort of acting as an industrial union while still being you know balkanized craft unions. Um, you know, you have it, it, this is it's an interesting situation. I don't think it has a, a huge amount of precedent. Oh, that's that's interesting. So maybe even the unions themselves, the bureaucrats are looking at the writing on the wall and they say, we might all go down together or we got to maybe start bargaining and fighting together. Yeah. So this is I, I I'm a little more optimistic about this. Well, I'm not going to say optimistic because I don't want to I don't want to curse it, um, <laughs> you know, but this yeah. is this is a, a better situation for the workers than it could be. Um <laughs> Just in terms of uh, their leverage at this point, just in time? Uh, and how much leverage they have in that this strike seems to be go. Um, it, it, I don't know what could avert it at this point, um, other than congressional action, which who knows? Um, yeah. You know, this is uh, uh, you still have you know Democrats in Congress, and hopefully a few of them will vote no <laughs> to uh, to yeah. forcing them back to work at gunpoint. Um, you know, so this is I, I don't know. It's a there are worse situations to be in if you're a railroad worker right now. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of workers out there. If we look at uh, in, in another part of the, the labor world, we look at the upcoming contract for the ILWU out on the West Coast, the uh, longshore and warehouse workers, and they are in a very good leverage uh, position right now in order to bargain uh, just because of what we saw, you know, with the supply chain and port meltdown over the last couple of years. But I guess like, if workers uh, militancy or at least anger or incipient incipient militancy um, is at like a very high point right now, um, what I'm looking for out of this, and it might not be in this strike, but it might be another one soon, is a similarly qualitative shift um, in the way that workers actually confront uh, the necessities of self-organization. And I think that a wildcat strike, if and when it comes to that, would be extremely powerful as like a symbol uh, across the American working class that somebody is still willing to fight. And that even within the old sclerotic and balkanized craft trade unions, uh, there is still the sort of self-organization and militancy that built these fucking things, you know, what, 150 years ago at this point in time? Yes. Um, which, you know, have seen, if you're looking at it at face value, a decline of from 500,000 workers to 133,000 workers, you got to be thinking to yourself, like, what are we going to end at? What's what's the end goal of here? What have these unions done? What have their tactics been? You know, how much have they cozied up to capital or at least listened 
to the dire warnings and, and done the layoffs and cuts and concessions and givebacks that the state and capitalists said necessary. How long do you do that until just like private sector unionism in this country in general, you go from almost nothing to nothing at all? Maybe it has to get to that point in order for something to change in terms of the way that people understand their relationship to capital and to work and to the unions. But I feel like this is potentially a possibility to show the rest of the class the way forward. And then they might be angry enough. They might be under enough pressure from all these changes that have come down in the last five to 25 years that the, the people are willing to fight. I hope so. It sounds like they might be. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it's going to be... It's going to be an interesting couple of days when the deadline comes is about all I can say. Um, this is I, I, I can't make too many predictions other than strike is almost definitely going to happen. <laughs> well, that's something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is is uh, is Congress talking about shutting like forcing the contract down their throats before they go on strike? Or you think it'll be a couple of days at least? Well, Marty Walsh said, um, you know, we're, we may have to order them back to work. So, you know, I, I, I there, there's there's going to be there, there will probably be some action by Congress is all I can say. But I, I don't know how long that will take or how, how it will work. <laughs> all right. Well, we will uh, maybe maybe you yeah. and me can have like a 48 hour live stream. Yeah. When it comes to <laughs> Strike watch. Strike yeah, let me watch. let me let me, uh, let me check my tap water every hour. See if I <laughs> <laughs> see how much cholera is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um i i think that pretty much i think that's a great episode man i feel like yeah. you bring um a knowledge to this that's that's really really useful i feel like you and me could probably go on forever and ever about the failures of u.s capitalism as yes. represented by the short-sightedness um the rent-seeking uh, of these um four big companies which are potentially about to drive the u.s economy off a cliff we could talk about yeah. i think an interesting aspect which is that Whereas in the 19th century, the big populist forces against railroads were like farmers and workers. Yes. The, the Grangers. The Grangers, yeah, yeah, the famous Grange movement. Now it's other capitalists. Yes. So that's a really interesting thing. Wondering if there's like could be a split. Yeah. Why, um, why don't we ever talk about class. capital on capital violence? Capital. <laughs> let's get out the FBI statistics yeah. on capital <laughs> on capital violence. That's a conversation we should be having. I mean, if there is capital on capital violence, I think we got to stand by the sidelines, maybe. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah, just, know, just jump in fight. at the right moment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. let's uh, I've got an idea, Justin. Yes. Do you want to hear my crazy idea? Well, you, you told it to me earlier, but I'm going to pretend that it's a uh, it's a new idea I haven't yes. heard before. Yes, be surprised by this idea. But my idea is we take one of the beloved segments from the wonderful Well, There's Your Problem podcast, which I'm not sure any listeners don't know where to find Well, There's Your Problem, but go on YouTube or go on your podcast app. It's a yes. great, great thing. I've had some really fun times being on there. But one of the great segments that you guys do is uh, Safety Third. Shake hands, Shake hands with, with danger. <laughs> Uh, we don't have Alice here to yeah. do the to to, to plug that in, no, we, but uh, I figured only, maybe uh, we do we do have uh, we do have a soundboard here. What the hell is that? <laughs> that's uh, that's that's a um that that is an Eagles fan yelling at a Minnesota lady. Oh, perfect! <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the kind of content you get from. Well, there's that's your from problem. that's from Liam's uh, sports podcast, Ten Thousand Losses. Which ah, yes. Also uses this Zencaster account. <laughs> 
also something that uh, you should check out. But no, what if we did a safety third and I told job horror stories and we talked about it and laughed about it, about the fact that I almost died and I didn't. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. That's a new and interesting idea. Let's do it. All right. It shall be done. Folks, if you enjoyed this episode, there's a bunch more content on the other side of the paywall. Uh, Patreon.com slash the Antifada. Sign up. There's a whole bunch of good stuff on there. Justin and I are now going to the other side of the wall. Yes. Uh, See you there. I got my papers in order and everything.